Welcome to the A Fire Podcast. Now streaming on Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. Each episode features real and honest conversations with thought leaders from around the world at all levels of the commercial real estate and investing business, examining the ideas and questions fundamental to the future of our industry. Where are we now? What happens next? What should we do about it? How do we become better investors, leaders, and global citizens? For more, here's your host and the CEO of AFIRE, Gunnar Branson. Confronting the Myth. That's the title of an article in the latest AFIRE Summit Journal by Shamika Pickett. It's focused on how we, all of us, need to refocus our thinking, our language, and ultimately our actions around racism. This is difficult stuff. It requires hard personal work and reflection. But what I've learned with Shamika's guidance, it's possible to confront and replace that myth of racism with something real, something better. That's why I'm thrilled to have Shamika Pickett, the founder and principal of Alfred DeWitt Art, a consulting firm, on the show today. So thank you, Shamika, for joining me on the A-Fire podcast. Thank you for having me, Gunnar. I'm happy to be here. So you wrote in that same article, uh, quote, the events of the past year have driven businesses to confront racial inequity, but some still shy away from the challenging language needed to make real restorative and economic progress. That, that says a lot, uh, uh, but maybe you could kind of break it down a bit for us here, especially around this idea that our language is falling shy of what we need to address the problem. Well, the event that triggered an uptick um, of interest in the business community around race, white supremacy, and racial equity was the public lynching of George Floyd. Um, happened about a year ago, and we all saw it. It was televised. The recording of that event was, and all of us saw it. And as a result of that event, that event triggered hundreds of other events that happened around the nation and, and in fact, around the globe. Um, protests and all sorts of forms of activism in response to that event. Um, however, and unfortunately, that event occurred simultaneously um, with the pandemic. And so people were responding also to the um, disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on Black and brown communities. And as a result of that, um, it spurred on conversations that had already been happening everywhere about um, what is race in America? What is it like to be black in America? What is the impact of race on black, indigenous and people of color in this country and around the globe? Um, and because of those conversations, um, there was a greater number of people who were eager to participate in the conversations. They wanted to know exactly what was being discussed. They wanted to understand um, the language that was being used, and they wanted to understand how they could play a part in improving the problems that many of us already knew about, but for some of us, we were just learning about. Um, what's extremely important in any conversation, um, and especially in conversations around problem solving, is using language that is clear. Um, and sometimes, often, it is important to establish language that is common. 
And some of the language that is the clearest and most common when talking about race um, and when talking about an event like the one that we saw with George Floyd being publicly lynched is to use the term white supremacy. Um, in my line of work, um, I have found that um, although I've been doing this work for a very long time, um, it has never, I have not seen a decline in the um, discomfort um, with white audiences in particular when that word is used. Um, and so if there is discomfort with using language that, that defines the problem clearly, it can be very difficult to advance a conversation to describe the problem and then move to solutions to address it. it it's actually an extraordinary word uh, or phrase in that it, it describes quite a bit uh, of what, what we're dealing with. Um, and it is also so emotionally loaded. Uh, I think most, a lot of people, uh, when they hear that term, uh, would turn to their own behavior and say, but uh, white supremacy, that's not something that, that I do. I'm a decent human being. Uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not out there, uh, causing violence. I'm not doing these things that white supremacists, uh, might do. Uh, how, how do you move the understanding of that phrase then from explicitly one party to something that, that's more systemic. I typically start by talking about the imagery that is typically conjured up when you hear the term. For most of us, when we hear the term white supremacy or white supremacist, we will oftentimes think of white men and white cloths with their face covered with only their eyes showing. Um, and more modern illustrations, we'll think of white men uh, storming streets with tiki torches. Um, and we often imagine that they've uh, donned themselves with that gear um, and taken to the streets in an attempt to cause physical and brutal harm to people who don't look like them. And so it's helpful to start the conversation by pointing out that those of us that are capable of perpetuating or being complicit with what we call white supremacy come in all shapes, shape, forms and fashions. All of us don't wear white cloths. All of us do not use tiki torches. Um, so after sort of... Uh, addressing the imagery that is conjured up. And that imagery is understandably con conjured up because oftentimes in white supremacy has been discussed in textbooks, when it's been discussed historically, those are the sorts of people and groups that we um, articulate, that we identify, that we describe, or that we point to. Um, and so that sort of education um, and that imagery and media has done us an extreme disservice. Um, and so it's also helpful to move the conversation with establishing a definition of white supremacy that helps helps to level set who we're referring to and the actions that we're referring to when we use the term. So, as you know, in the article, the definition that we use of white supremacy um, is the idea that there has been a lie that has been told. The lie that has been told is that if you are white, you are um, genetically, intellectually, physically, economically, and socially superior to everyone who is not white. And so it places white people at the top of a racial hierarchy that we have made up, we created. It was socially constructed by humans like you and I. And so you have white folks who are at the top of that hierarchy. At the very other end of that hierarchy, at the bottom, we place black folks. And we've um, advanced the lie that black people are genetically intellectually, physically, socially, and economically inferior to people who are not white. 
And then we've also said that folks who um, do not identify as white and do not identify as black. So everyone that is in between, that would be our indigenous um, brothers and sisters and people of color. They fall somewhere in between. And their worth is estimated by how, by how close they can get to whiteness, um, either through um, economics, socially, professionally, or ge geographically based on where they live. Um, and so we've advanced that lie. One of the reasons it can be very difficult um, and uncomfortable to embrace the idea um, that you and me, for example, um, can play a part in advancing this idea of white supremacy is because we don't often name um, that white supremacists are not always white. Um, all of us, black people, indigenous people, and people of color um, can all be perpetuating or advancing this lie, this notion that white people are the most superior. And the reason that that is possible is because one of the most underrated characteristics of white supremacy is its pervasiveness. And so I think I named that in the article, oftentimes when I have conversations with audiences, I talk about white supremacy by also talking about it as a narrative. White supremacy is an ongoing story that's always being told. So even if no, if no one is committing an external act of horror or violence against a black person, indigenous person or person of color, the lie, this popular lie is being told everywhere we go. It's being told when we um, transition from spending our time in a white neighborhood and perhaps we go five miles down the road and we find ourselves in a black neighborhood. In many cities, you can aesthetically see the difference between those neighborhoods in terms of um, physical cleanliness, in terms of um, retail resources that might be available in that neighborhood. The other way that that lie is constantly being told is perhaps how, um, and this is a pretty common one in the city that you and I live in, Gunner, is how the school system is being described, right? Um, and when you talk about the kind of education or schools that kids who are not white receive in a city, in comparison to the kids who are white are in the city, that is a way, another vehicle through which that lie is being advanced. And so when we underestimate the pervasiveness of the lie, we miss the point that in order to perpetuate it or to be complicit with it, you don't have to carry tiki torches or don a white cloth, right? You can simply just go on passively with the narrative, the popular lie that's always being told around us all the time. And when we sort of are um, lulled, into passive complicity with the lie, we advance it in ways that we don't even know. That that's that's powerful. Uh, I, I love the the phrase that you repeated a couple of times: the pervasiveness of the lie. Um, the it, it's it's omnipresent. It's it's in every transaction. It's uh, it's the world that yes. we know that we live in, that we work yes. in, that we do all these things. And yes. it, it, because of that, just like yes. I don't notice the air because it's everywhere. Um, this is something yes. that's easy to miss. Um, yes. if, if, if you are, if you are white, it's difficult, it's easy to miss. Um, and it, it takes some work. Mm -hmm. A lot of what I've admired about the work that you do is your emphasis on, introspection 
your emphasis on on people looking inside themselves and 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 learning from that and learning about what it is that we don't know is there examining all those unexamined assumptions can you talk a bit about that work mm-hmm. and about why and how um if you don't mind i like to refer back to the um the imagery that you just called on when you talked about the atmospheric nature of the lie and the reason i always appreciate that it's because I think it helps to disarm those of us who are uncomfortable with the term. Um, if we know that when we walk outside or even are sitting in our houses watching the television, we're always inhaling those toxins. And all of us, every single one of us, white people, black people, indigenous people, people of color, all of us are susceptible to inhaling them. Um, as it relates to introspection, I oftentimes think of a refrain that I think I may have even used in the article um, that says that you cannot conquer what you do not confront and you cannot confront what you do not identify. And whenever I use that refrain, I often think of um, white people who want to become meaningful participants and changing the world that we live in who want to become meaningful participants in annihilating this popular lie, who want to become people who are not passively or actively advancing or perpetuating the lie. Um, And the reason why those people encourage me and uh, give me hope to continue to do the work that I do every day. Um, And it's really important though, to remind them of the pervasiveness of that lie because the starting point for introspection is just accepting that you are complicit and you are perpetuating the lie. Once you've acknowledged that it's just a fact of the culture and society that we live in, it prepares you to take the next step in the work. And that is to ask yourself very specifically, where am I perpetuating it? How am I complicit in it? What are the specific narratives I've digested? Lies I've been told over the course of my life that I've accepted as fact and respectfully, sometimes without critical examination, right? And how how deeply have those lies been inde- embedded into my psyche? And as a result of that, how are those passive, deeply embedded lies informing the choices I make in my everyday life about where I live, about where I eat, about where I hang out, about where I donate my charitable dollars, about where I send my kids to school, about what kind of entertainment I consume, what kind of books I read, what kind of art I'll engage. Lies have, that kind of lie has the power to radically alter every aspect of your life without you knowing. And without a blunt intrusion on your thought process, without something or someone spurring you to say, what do I really believe about people who don't look like me? And getting comfortable with asking yourself, How is that really informing what I do? The kind of introspection that leads to the kind of change that you're you're hinting at cannot begin to happen. It it has struck me in that process, in that process of looking at the lie and the pervasiveness of the lie and looking inside yourself, is that you talked about stuff that was embedded and embedded deep, which at least my experience has been that that stuff that's really embedded, not going to happen you're not going to see that in the first day. You're not going to see that the first time you ask the question. It it, it almost requires an ongoing process. Um, w- w- would you agree? Absolutely, I agree. Um, I I want to I want to use a popular example of um, a white supremacist environment 
that many of us have sat in or currently sit in that um, empowers us to hold on to this lie. Um, I want to use it because I think it's relevant to the people who may listen to the podcast. Um, But I want to preface my use of this example by saying that I, too, have spent considerable amounts of time of my professional lives in these environments as well. So I am also not exempt. Um, People may or may not see the video portion of this, so I should probably announce that I am a black woman um, so that they don't have to guess um, who it is you're talking to. Um, But one of the painful realizations that I've come to over the course of doing this work in particular is that um, predominantly or exclusively white corporate environments um, are uh, petri dishes for white supremacy. If every day I show up to a workplace where I am surrounded by subject matter experts, people who are highly specialized, people who are titans of industry, people who are offering products and services and are moving industries and sectors in such a way that they make significant impact on the world that I live in nationally and on the world around me, they all are white. That is telling me a story. It is telling me that the people best suited for these sorts of opportunities, the people who are best suited for these roles um, are people who look like me. And I go there every day and perhaps you're a person who don't who does not consciously buy into the notion of racial hierarchy. And so you would be very uncomfortable with the suggestion that you, too, are somehow perpetuating and complicit and advancing this lie. But if you're constantly in environments that reinforce right, a story about who should be where and what they're capable of doing, that lie is being um, sold to you. It's being reinforced. Um, the, the, the roots of that lie are being deeply embedded into who you are. Um, my desire to use that illustration made me lose sight of the question that you actually asked me. So I'm going to have to ask you to repeat it. Well, actually, I think this is a great line of thought to, to, to go down. And, and I, I would love for you to expand this a little bit because it's a concern of, of a lot of members that, uh, of, of AFIRE is who are engaged in diversity hiring programs that are trying to bring, uh, you know, a, a broader, diverse uh, group of men and women into their programs. And historically, those programs haven't always been optimal. Uh, and it, it sounds like it may be related to this. So, I, uh, you know, I'd love to get more of a picture around this in terms of this, the, this very much this white narrative environment that is most corporate uh, environments. Um, how, how does one deal with the bringing in of people that are not part of that um, uh, racial hierarchy? I appreciate that question so much because I think it goes back to one of your earlier questions about introspection. Right. And so oftentimes in in a misstep of organizations who have a meaningful interest in advancing diversity and inclusion efforts is that the decision makers um, don't pause to ask themselves, um, what do I believe about people who are not white and how do those beliefs inform the decisions that I make for this business? And without asking yourself, you move to activism. And activism looks like advancing a diversity effort through your hiring practices. The harm with that is that activism without introspection 
leads to you perpetuating the very harm that you are aiming to nullify, right? So if you haven't asked yourself, what do I believe about people who are not white? And how do those beliefs inform the decisions that I am making for this business? All you're doing by opening up your hiring opportunities to people who are black, indigenous, or people of color is you're simply inviting them to work in, in, in a white supremacist environment without changing the environment and changing the things that make that environment white supremacist. And so there can oftentimes, understandably, be discomfort with slowing down that process because oftentimes when organizations are at a point when they're ready to um, aggressively tackle a racially homogenous workforce by hiring more black, indigenous, and people of color, oftentimes, not all the time, that happens because of public outcry. That happens because of some sort of external pressure that's calling them to accountability. And so because of that public outcry and that external pressure, organizations um, feel the pressure to move fast and make change fast. And when you have the desire and need to make rapid change, you never consider, nor do you have an interest in slowing down the pace of the process and doing personal introspection. Which is why I oftentimes say um, there are times when you won't be able to slow down the pace to do personal introspection. Those things can happen simultaneously. You can advance some of your efforts, but you should absolutely do the work that's required for you to be learning what kind of um, ideas and beliefs you have about people who are not black that are informing your business decisions that are creating the kind of environment that has not welcomed or been open to black or indigenous, indigenous or people of color. And when they show up, will inevitably harm them. So what also tends to happen is when you don't do the introspection, you open up your organization to people who are not white, they come, they work there, you begin to see high levels of attrition. They leave rapidly. And if there are exit interviews, they are not candid, they are not frank about the psychological harm that they suffered that's actually causing them to leave. They will name other reasons for their departure, right? Oftentimes it's because they're too exhausted to attempt to have the conversation because by the time you've decided to exit an organization, you've divested to the point where you don't want to engage in that kind of discourse. But even that feeds into the narrative the lie of white supremacy, because what often happens then is some of the HR professionals and other business leaders within the organization begin to say people who aren't, aren't like us, who didn't go to these sorts of schools, who don't have these sorts of economic, socioeconomic backgrounds, they don't make it in our industry, they can't make it in our sector, or they can't make it in our organization. And so if you then attempt to open the door to invite them in again, you know what you do? You think you have to make all of these concessions and accommodations and dilute the work, right? Or dilute the scope of responsibility to accommodate them when that's not what's needed at all. What's actually needed is that you do introspection and address your own internalized white supremacy so that you can make this environment safer and welcome them into it and watch them flourish. Well, and there's a lot of assumption questioning that needs to be done. I, I love the, what HR <laughs> in your example says around they didn't go to the, the, the same school. They didn't, you know, they, they don't, they don't look the same on paper as, as the people that we do hire, which suggests to me that, that there's a very much an unexamined assumption uh, there and a limitation uh, of a company if they're thinking that way, that the culture change that you've described to, to not just accommodate, but make for an environment where anyone is able to succeed 
um, requires real leadership. Uh, this is not a dial it in. This is not a, you know, I hire a consultant, even a great consultant like you, Shamika. It, it means that the individuals that are running the business have to make a personal commitment and, and have to engage in your introspection. Uh, because I think without that, without humility, I, I think these are all destined to not do so well. Yeah. I mean, it can be very uncomfortable to ask yourself to first have the courage to even ask the question, because most people don't believe that they believe in racial hierarchy. Most people don't believe that they um, think white people are superior to everyone else. If you asked most people, they would say, absolutely, I don't think that. And so it takes courage and humility to ask the question for starters, but then to sit quietly with yourself and answer it. And so at one of the services that I offer through my consulting firm is executive coaching. And so I have the opportunity to sit one on one with executives across industries and sectors um, and lead and support them in work where they are confronting their internalized white supremacy. And what I found is that sometimes those deeply held beliefs around that lie stem way back to childhood. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and I, I can I, I can also, you know, I can uh, can absolutely say that to, to any other executive that, that con con considers having that kind of conversation with Shumika, be ready. This is going to take all of you. This, this this is a this is a real conversation. This is not something that you can just shuffle off in any way. I'm, I'm glad I've had that conversation multiple times. Um, it, it makes a difference. Yeah, it can be it can be very uncomfortable, um, but it makes the difference. And so one of the things that I've always been very uncomfortable with before I started the consulting firm, when I was a person that I described when I was a professional who worked for behemoth organizations, um, oftentimes whenever the conversation about race and white supremacy never came up, race might have come up. Um, but whenever the conversation about race did come up and whenever there was an interest from the C-suite in addressing race in any fashion, it was simply because of the economic imperative of doing so. It was simply because someone had recognized oh, we're completely ignoring, ignoring a sector of the market. Why don't we try and offer these products and services to them to increase our market share and therefore increase our bottom line? I understand that businesses are designed to make profit um, and hopefully they're making profit by offering products and services that make the world a better place and make people happy. Um, but I was always uncomfortable with that as the sole reason for caring about race and white supremacy. Um, the economic imperative of doing this work can exist along with the moral imperative of doing it. We should want to treat the people who work for us well. And some of the very tangible and specific ways that white supremacy shows up in environments where executives haven't done this work um, is if someone like me is, if I pass the snuff, right, and I make it into the organization, um, there will be there, there there could be some instances where the way that I show up is so different um, than what is normal or expected um, that I could be hyper criticized or overly critiqued or be passively or proactively asked to adjust in ways that are not, not natural or comfortable for me. Right. And so I, I like to think that most business leaders would be heartbroken at the idea um, that I would be asked to adjust my existence in a way um, to look more like them in order to work there. 
Um, and that's just an example of like the way if you if you attach the moral imperative to the economic imperative, um, I can help your organization make more money because I'm great at whatever it is you've hired me to do. But you also contribute to my overall well-being. And I like to think business leaders care about that as well. And I that is separate from the happiness quotient, because that became a very popular determining factor around caring about these sorts of things as well. It's not just about the happiness quotient. It is about the humanization of people who are not white. On that topic, one of the things, as you know, Gunnar, um, and some of the work that we do, we don't just talk about how white supremacy dehumanizes Black people, Indigenous people, and people of color. We also spend time talking about how it dehumanizes white people. So it's obvious how the lie that because someone is not white, they are like intellectually inferior, um, prone to criminality and all of the other horrible lies that are cast upon their being. Those lies are obviously dehumanizing. We oftentimes don't talk about how the lie that just because your skin is white, that you are superior to everyone else. That lie can be crippling and harmful. Um, and I'll bring it into the context of the business environment again. If, for example, you end up working side by side within your organization with people who are not white, or if you're interfacing outside with clients, with people who are not white, um, and perhaps they bring ideas that may be better than yours and more widely celebrated, um, or perhaps they bring a strength in an area where you don't. If you're accustomed to being told that you're the best at everything and people that don't look like you don't have these capabilities, when you encounter people who don't look like you who actually do, you'd be surprised at the number of white people who don't know how to cope in that moment. They don't know what to do with that in that moment, right? Another way that that can oftentimes look is if... um You've always worked in an environment that is predominantly white, and perhaps you've um, only had bosses, managers, leaders who were also white. And you have this rare moment in your career where you're being led by a black person, an indigenous person, a person of color. You will then call into question all of their decisions because you're not you're not accustomed to be, being given direction, um, being offered counsel being critiqued or evaluated by someone who looks like you. So you call their leadership into question and you essentially undermining it, making their jobs way more difficult, making your job way more difficult too. But then you also rob yourself of an opportunity to learn something new from someone who doesn't look like you. So I bring that up just to name that this is not just about the dehumanization of Black, Indigenous, and people of color. This is absolutely positively about the dehumanization of people who are white as well. It's about the dehumanization of all. Um, I, I I love that idea, and I think it's a it's a strong one, and a, and a strong one to 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 continue to work on and think about um, as leaders, as people on the street, you know, whatever it might be. Um, it gives, I, I think that kind of process gives me at least some hope that, um, that some of these big intractable problems, um, can be addressed, can be, can be improved, can ultimately be solved. But what about you, Shmika? What, what do you hope? What, what, what do you, what are you most positive about, um, going forward? I am most positive about particularly today. Um, I am most positive, positive about the increase in the number of well-meaning white executives 
who are reaching out to consulting firms like mine. I am not the only one. There are tons of other ones across the nation who are doing exemplary work in this area, who are reaching out with sobriety, who are showing up with deep meaningfulness and asking to um, be supported in introspection and in interrogation, not just for the economic advancement of the organizations that they lead, but so that they can be better leaders who create better business environments that then lead to making the world a better place. That gives me an intense amount of hope. Well, uh, I'm so glad to hear that. And I share your hope, Shamika. And I want to thank you for being a part of the AFIRE podcast. Thank you for having me, Gunnar. You've been listening to the AFIRE podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice through this podcast. No content included here is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information, including the AFIRE podcast, may have been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable. AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed in the AFIRE podcast are those of its respective contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE. To learn more about the AFIRE podcast, including underwriting and guest opportunities, visit afire.org slash podcast.